Well, good morning again, everyone. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. That verse was so powerful and struck one of the great composers in the history of this world so deeply that Handel wrote that song and gave us that gift for eternity, that we could reflect and we could see how Jesus foretold the most amazing prophecy, the most amazing gift that God could give to this world. And so as we enter this Christmas season, and you can see what an obvious goal is going to be, by the time we get to December 21st, you are going to have this verse memorized. (laughs) Because we are going to do nothing but study it deeply every single week. We are going to take a look at each of these four elements of who Jesus was as foretold by Isaiah in chapter 9, verse 6. But before we get into that, I just want to give you a little background and a little context about this prophecy. I think it's always important that we know when something is written, that we know the context behind it, and that we know the circumstances behind it. So if you want to follow along with your notes, I've prepared those here for you as well. And to just give you a little bit of background about Isaiah, he wrote this close to 900 B.C., and he was speaking and writing mostly to those in Jerusalem. And his purpose was very, very simple. He wanted to call his nation, the nation of Judah, back to God. And he wanted to tell of God's salvation through a coming Messiah. He is foretelling the birth of Jesus. And here are some circumstances that are sort of surrounding Judah at the time. Judah, and this may sound familiar to us today, Judah was under siege both from within and from without. There's a strong theme that is, that is clear in this book, and it's all about repentance. You see, Judah is at siege among itself because of all of the sin that is going on within it. But it's also at siege because there are constantly enemies who are wanting to attack Jerusalem. And in this particular time, we know that it was a group of people called the Assyrians. These were a particular threat to the Jews, and they were threatening their way of life. You may want to think about these Assyrians as, a, uh, as an ancient ISIS, if you will. They came with one purpose, and that was to seek and destroy. And so there is this tension that is mounting around Isaiah and around the Jerusalem that he is preaching to and foretelling to. And so this is when he begins to unfold the prophecy of this coming Messiah. And this message is entitled, Foretold the one we're going to be doing here together. And for the next four weeks, we are going to look in depth at this one verse, Isaiah 9-6. And we are going to closely study each of these elements, each of these coming Sundays. It's as if Isaiah is saying, hold on right now, because a day is coming. He's saying that to the people of his time. Well, that day came. Jesus was born. And now it's as if we are saying another day is coming, and you can imagine what's being foretold next. He's coming back. And so that is going to be sort of the undertow of our entire series as we move forward. We are going to see how Jesus fulfills these elements of prophecy, and then equally, and I think very much as importantly, we are going to examine. That's a word you're going to be seeing a lot in our life group study and in the extra work that we're going to be doing with this. We are going to examine our lives in relation to the truth of who Jesus was and, to, and what he taught. And so I want to read this verse one more time. For to us a child is born, 
To us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Today we are going to look at Jesus as the Prince of Peace. And we know how important peace was to him because in Matthew 9, he tells his followers very clearly, excuse me, in Matthew 5, 9, he tells his followers very clearly, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. Later on in Peter's ministry, he writes in 1 Peter 3.11, Peter says, they must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. Now, when I was preparing this message, I could go verse after verse after verse of all the different ways and all the different contexts that we are taught to be peacemakers, why peace is so important. Isaiah even has more to say about peace when he writes in chapter 2, verse 4, he will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. I think of people who are thinking of loved ones who are off fighting for our freedom, fighting around the world. What news would that be to hear they're all coming home? They're never going to be in harm's way again. Isaiah says there is a day coming, a day when the weapons that we make for war will turn into tools of production. You know, a modern translation for Isaiah 2-4 may sound something like this. They will take the airplanes, and rather than dropping bombs and missiles from them, these planes will airlift food to starving nations. What kind of world would that look like if that's the world that Jesus fulfills? It's coming. A day is coming, Isaiah says. Instead of meeting in war rooms, planning how to kill each other, one day we will meet around conference tables delivering how to help each other. That's the vision that Isaiah is sharing here. It is clear from the prophecy of Isaiah and in the life and teachings of Jesus, the Messiah, he prophesied that Jesus took peacemaking very seriously. It was one of the mandates that he gives us, his disciples, his followers, And it is one of the expectations that he demands from his body, the church. I don't know if you've ever thought about it this way, but we are commanded to be peacemakers. We are mandated to be peacemakers. So here's the challenge today. A fundamental question that we need to address. And that is simply this. How serious are you? How serious am I? How serious are we about being peacemakers? How seriously are we following our peacemaking mandate? Because I'm going to tell you something. I think there are two things that get in the way of any kind of peacemaking. And I'll start with myself because this is true, I think, in every one of us. Number one, I have an ego. Okay? You laughed a little louder than I wanted you to. But yeah, I have an ego. And you know what? So do you. And by ego, I define ego as this. Ego is our need to control and be right all the time. That's an ego, and I have one, and so do you. Here's something else that we all have. We all have self-interests. A good friend of mine who is a psychiatrist, she spends her days repairing broken things, broken families, broken kids, broken relationships. She told me just two weeks ago 
That research is clear. 90% of our thoughts, you can test this against yourselves, but 90% of our thoughts revolve either around us or our own personal self-interests. That's what the research is saying, that when we think, we're quite often thinking about ourselves or our own interests. Now, that's not always a bad thing. It's good to think about our children. It's good to think about those around us. But a lot of times we have self-interest, don't we? So we're driven by ego and we're driven by self-interest. Now, please don't turn to your spouse and go, all right? This is for all of us. See, when we enter relationships, we come with these two challenges. We have egos, we have self-interests, and a lot of times this drives our thinking and it drives our motives. And a lot of times those things aren't conducive to finding peace. Now, here's the good news. We also don't walk through this journey of life. We don't walk through our journey of faith alone. We have Jesus. We have that constant conduit to God through Jesus. We have each other, and we have church. And so another fundamental question that should come out of this is, what is our role as a church in peacemaking? You know, I got to thinking about this. We have some of the finest military academies in the world, and I'm thankful for them. Some of the finest military military preparatory academies in the world exist right here in the United States. How many peacemaking academies do we have? How many times are we intentionally thinking and talking about how to strategize to make peace? You see, I think that is a role of the church. I think we can be one of the first and strongest places to be a peacemaking academy in our communities. But it takes work. It takes effort. It takes sacrifice. And it takes the grace of God. Glenn Stassen is a professor at Duke University, and he said that peace, like war, must be waged. It's a provocative statement. It means that if we are going to be intentional about being peacemakers, we must be intentional about waging peace. And so for the next several minutes, I want us to examine ourselves in relation to the personal conflicts we are facing in terms of the places where maybe we're not feeling peace. Maybe there is lack of peace with God. We're going to talk about that here in a moment. Maybe there's a lack of peace in family right now that you're struggling with. A lack of peace in friendships or relationships. A lack of peace in your workplace, your neighborhood, or the community at large. You see, we can talk about all the problems in the world, and we can talk about problems in our nation, but sometimes we have to look more deeply into what's more close to us. We start by examining ourselves. So I just want to take one little quick jaunt before I get into the heart of this message, and that is simply this. Where are you at with God? I never know when, when, we, when we gather for a service. I never know who's coming in the door. And so I want to make sure that my message is for everybody in an audience. And so I want to start with this assumption. Maybe somebody here today is not close to God. I was an elder in a previous church, and one of my responsibilities was to meet with people who were either committing or recommitting their lives to Christ. They were searching for and were wanting to commit to this church as their new church home. And so as you would sit and listen to their stories, almost every single time over my three years in this role, and I must have had at least several dozen different conversations, the people coming to faith were not necessarily new to Christ. Most of the time, they were raised in the church, they knew about God, they knew about Jesus, but somewhere along the way, some circumstance, some person, some life happening happened to them, they were hurt, and they abandoned the faith. They walked away. They left. 
But here's the deal. Leaving the presence of God does not take away our thirst for him or our thirst for his presence. It's a void. It's a void that we're longing to fill. I want to ask you a very straightforward question as part of this this morning. Because I think it's going to be difficult for you to address other conflicts in your life until you are fully and truly at peace with God. It's got to start there. Are you at peace with God? Because here's two realities. Number one, people along this journey of life, people are going to hurt you. They are. They're going to hurt you. That's, that's just, it's, it's life. It's a fallen world. And sometimes life circumstances themselves are going to hurt you. But here's the thing. God is not the author of that pain. Now, I know it's not enough for me just to say that and walk away, but I want to leave you with this verse, and I want you to pray through this, and I want to open up the door for a conversation if this is something you're struggling with. In Romans 8, 28, we have this assurance. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. I want you to land on that verse this morning if you're having any struggles right now. And I definitely, I want to take the opportunity to visit with you more, either after this service today or sometime when we can get together to maybe talk more through that. But I think it's important, if we're talking about making peace with people, we have to start by understanding, are we at peace with God? So moving forward, establishing that, let's talk about all the other people, (laughs) that we have to make peace with, all the other dynamics that take place in our life. And I want to give you this framework, and it's in your notes, and I thought this was amazing. This is a very prominent Christian thinker by the name of John Paul Lederach, and I made sure I spelled his name correctly. So if you want to Google him later, if you want to look up more of what he says and does, you certainly have access to do that. He's a professor at the University of Notre Dame, and he is doing some groundbreaking studies on Conflict, notice this word, transformation. Not conflict resolution, but conflict transformation. And to make this applicable to us today as we seek to be peacemakers, as we look for strategies to be peacemakers, I want to use this framework with you today. You see, here's the difference between conflict resolution and transformation. I resolve conflicts every day. If you're a mom, guess what? You're resolving conflicts every day, aren't you? You're constantly resolving this. Whether it's kids, whether it's adults, you're constantly resolving conflict. We as human beings have the power to resolve a conflict. Give a little, take a little, compromise, work things out. But it's God who gives us the power, and it's God who has the power, I should say, to transform through conflict. And there's a big difference And what Lederach is doing in his research and the application of that research is to try to see how we can use conflict as a way to transform relationships and not just resolve problems. So I want to give you that framework quickly and show you how this can work in a lot of different areas. I want you to be able to take this as application this week, to be able to apply it to your own lives. Number one, disruptions. You're going to laugh about this for a second, but disruptions are inevitable, If you've been married, say, for more than a week, you know this, right? Be honest. How many of you had at least one disruption on your honeymoon, if you think back to that, okay? Disruptions are inevitable. They are going to happen whenever we are in relationship with any other people. They're inevitable. But it's what we do with those disruptions that makes the difference in the relationship, 
It makes the difference on whether we're going to have peace or whether we're going to ultimately have conflict because we can choose to see these as opportunities to strengthen the relationship. We can strengthen the relationship when we face a disruption. Too many times we have disruption, we get uncomfortable with it, and we just sort of want to walk away, don't we? We need to see this in the framework of they're inevitable, these disruptions. Let's let them strengthen our relationship. But here's the problem, letter X says. If you can't resolve a disruption quickly, what do you tend to do? You tend to move away from each other. So picture yourself on a length of a football field, and you start at midfield at the 50, and little disruption, little disruption, you're moving away, moving away, moving away, just like this. And what happens is the more you avoid and the more you move away, what happens to your heart? Your heart begins to harden. And pretty soon you've moved so far away, your heart is so hard that there's no going back. And we think about relationships that get broken. I don't think anybody ever intends to break a relationship. But it happens slowly, and then gradually, and then suddenly. And when we get to the suddenly, that's when we start facing real crisis. And so what Letter Act says is somewhere along the line, when you recognize that there is a disruption, what you choose to do with it is critically important. And he believes that every disruption can be repaired with what he calls a turn. A turn. And we're going to take a look at what a turn means here in a little bit. Now, I figured if I'm going to put myself out there and try to teach this, I better use my own example. So, this is a huge cause of disruption in our house, not for the reason you think. It's not about the money that gets spent out of this. It's the fact that this wallet has been through the spin cycle about five times. Okay? (laughs) And here's the deal. There was one particular time when I was looking for my wallet. Couldn't find my wallet. I found my wallet after it had been washed. And inside my wallet was the sum of about $220 worth of receipts that I was turning back into school for a business trip that I took. And these receipts now looked about like that. (laughs) And the problem was I wrote that policy, so I've got to follow it, right? (laughs) So so I go to Beth, and, and I... I confess this. I mean, I'm not perfect. I'm far from it. I go to Beth and I'm angry. I said, how do you do this? How did you wash my wallet? Didn't you check? And you know what her response is? Check your own pants. And so we get in this conflict, and this conflict escalated to the point where I'm asking all of our friends, what would you do if your wallet got washed? Whose fault is that? And one after another, they kept telling me, Jeff, it's your wallet. Take it out of your pants, right? But I'm busy. So I lose that. But here's what happened. The way I treated Beth over my own problem was a disruption. And here's what could have happened had my wife not been so full of grace. She could have thought to herself, he doesn't respect me because he's making me take care of his stuff. And I'm saying to her, because I was actually accusing her, I think you're just doing this to teach me a lesson because I keep forgetting. (laughs) It's hard to deal with an illogical person, isn't it? Well, I'm being illogical. But the disruption could have started us moving away into not just, it's not about the wallet, is it? It's about everything else in the relationship. This is just a symptom of it. I'm going to talk about a better way that I'm going to handle that next time it happens. Because you all know me, I'm going to have this happen again. It's just going to. I've got a plan for that. And I'm going to get to that in a second. But I want you to take a look at Matthew 5.23 because this is where we have to go when we see these disruptions. 
and we see how they affect our family. We're talking about specific things, conflicts and disruptions within our family. Listen to what Jesus says. He says, if you are offering your gift at the altar, in other words, if you are coming to my house, if you are coming to my altar, and there remember that your brother or sister, and fill in the blank, mother, spouse, um, son, daughter, if they have something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. I tell you what, every time I read that verse, it just kind of smacks me right in the middle of my eyes. Jesus is saying very clearly, before you enter my presence, be reconciled with those I've surrounded you with. That's how seriously Jesus takes peace. And you know what I think this means? And this is just my interpretation a little bit. I'm, you know, we could, we could debate and discuss this, but here's what I think this means. When we come to church without peace in our very own families, with those who God gave us and surrounded us with, whether it's our close friends or our family, at best, when we don't have that kind of peace, at best, it interferes with our connection to God. And at worst, it sows discontent among other people. The problem is we are human beings, and we all have disruptions. We've established that. The solution is in how we intentionally, and sometimes we have to be deliberately intentional about making peace through those disruptions. So that begs the question, how do we take disruptions and get to a turn, this turn that Letter Act talks about? How do we get there before we move too far away? Or, just as importantly, how can we use a turn to repair a disruption that has pushed us far, far away? I think this starts with one word, and it is a really hard word for, I think, all of us in some ways, isn't it? And that's this word, humility. It starts with humility. Craig Detweiler is a communications professor at Pepperdine University, in California. It was actually a university founded by Disciples of Christ, if, in case you didn't know that, a little FYI. But one of his tasks at this university as a communications professor is to prepare young men and women to take the message of Christ through the media and into move, the movie industry. Now that sounds like a pretty worthy goal in this culture, right? Let's get more Christian filmmakers. Let's get more Christians doing things with media to share the gospel. And so Craig took a group of his students to, Sun, to the Sundance Festival. And if you know much about movies, I had to do a little research on this, but the Sundance Film Festival is kind of the premier place where people show independent films. And so people gather from all over the country. They come. These films are presented. Awards are given, kind of like the Academy Awards. And people have just a chance to intermingle and talk and discuss. There's powerful messages that come through this festival. And so Craig was sitting in one particular showing of a movie that was depicting Christians in a very, very bad light. The tone, was hip the tone of the movie showed all of the actors as being hypocritical and judgmental, brushing with a really broad stroke. Some really unfair things were sort of portrayed. And the room, the entire room of people watching this, um, was one of just mocking and sort of taunting Christianity. In fact, it portrayed Jesus in very blasphemous terms. It was very, very offensive. And so the movie ends. And Detweiler remembers exactly what happened that very next moment. It was time for questions. And he could feel the mood in the room. And it was a mood of edginess and anger and mocking. And it was his turn to ask a question. And he stood up and he looked at the director. The director's name was Jay. 
And he stood up and he simply opened with this. He said, Jay, first of all, I want to thank you for your efforts. As a fellow North Carolinian, as a fellow filmmaker, and then he said what I thought were these magic words that sort of stunned the whole room. He said, and as an evangelical Christian, and he said as soon as he said that, the room just sort of went, and tension was starting to build. This director was ready for a fight. This crowd was ready for a fight. He said, I simply stood up and I said, Jay, I apologize for anything anyone has ever done to you in the name of God. And he sat back down. The room went still. He literally diffused and disarmed the entire room. After that film festival, an actor came up to him with tears in his eyes. He said, when I was 18, my parents told me that I was good for nothing, that I had no hope, and they wanted nothing ever to do with me again. My church and my family, they turned their back on me. And I've been dealing with this anger and this hurt for 20 years. If Christianity is really what you just showed me, I think I'm ready to take another try at it. Now, can you imagine what would have happened had he not shown humility in that moment? Would he have ever had a chance to reach out and make an impact on somebody sitting in that room? This became so powerful. This affected this director so much that the very next day, the entire cast of that movie went to Detweiler's class at Pepperdine, and they had a three-hour discussion about faith. Now, did it convince everybody? Did it change anything? The movie's still out there. It's there. But do you think some bridges were built? Do you think some re-examination was taking place? It starts with humility. That disruption, those disruptions that we, that we encounter, we start addressing them with our humility. So maybe next time I wash my wallet in my pants, or at least somehow that comes through the cycle. And by the way, you want to know what a social security card looks like four times through the, uh, the, the rinse cycle? The next time this happens, what if I go to Beth and I say this, Beth... You don't have to do my laundry, but I know that when you do, it's because you know how busy that I am, and knowing that I left my wallet in my pants again tells me I'm really pretty busy and probably too busy. Thank you for doing my laundry, and I will uh, take care of my own wallet. You think that's going to change our relationship? You see, we've talked about this before. I protect, and you protect relationships by paying attention to them. And I pay attention to my closest relationships by making sure every day I'm acting in love and humility toward the people who I'm closest to. And if I'm acting that way toward my wife and I'm acting that way toward my kids, guess what? There's a better chance that I'm going to be acting that way toward people in my neighborhood and in my community and at my workplace. But i got to start. It starts with my relationship with God. It moves to my relationship with my family. And then it moves to the larger spheres that God entrusts me to deal with. I want to give you one, a couple more thoughts here as we start wrapping up. Let's talk about peace in our neighborhood and peace in our communities. I was on the phone this week with our, one of our attor- school attorneys, Beth Grobe. She's from St. Louis, and she said, you know, Jeff, we've been working together for 10 years. You knew I grew up in St. Louis because she's always killing me about me being a Cubs fan. But she said, I didn't tell you that actually my hometown is Ferguson, Missouri. And she said, I never thought I would come to the day where I couldn't bring my family home to see my brother because I'm scared to death that something's going to happen there over Thanksgiving weekend, and we're probably not able to go home. She goes, I never thought I'd see that day in this country. And we talk about it, and we see the images of all of the violence, and we see all of the, the disruption and all of the stuff that is going on in a place like Ferguson. But I always wonder why the media doesn't show the other pictures. 
Because there is a lot of violence that's going on there. But there's also a lot of people, she shared with me, who are trying to be part of the solution, who are trying to reach across the aisle, who are trying to help clean the mess up, who are trying to build bridges. And I asked this question, what about us? This church serves several communities, and we have several communities represented here. What are we doing to make sure that we are all connected? We are all connected in the name of God. Where are we finding places for peace and not allowing tensions to exist, not allowing tensions to creep in? That's a fair question for us as a church. What are we doing to build the connection in the communities around us, within us, everywhere? And then I want to talk for a moment about just the world in general. And I want to share these verses with you. Jesus says, later on in chapter 5, it's actually verses 43 through 48, it's not in your notes, but he says, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son, listen to this, he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. In other words, it's all God's world. Whether it's your enemy or not, this is all God's world. And he's telling us to pray for our enemies. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not, do not even pagans do that? Be perfect. And this is a command he gives. He says, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. You know what he's saying there? Don't hold grudges. Don't hate your enemies. One of my favorite all-time lines came from Larry Lage. And I didn't tell him I was going to use him in this sermon, so Larry, I apologize, but I already said your name. <laughs> Larry said that when we hold grudges, it's like drinking poison and waiting for the other person to die. I love that. Because guess who's being poisoned by that? It's me. When I hold this, when I harbor this anger, or I harbor these Ill, these Ill wills toward people around me, I'm the one who's dying from it, not them. It's wise advice, and Jesus is telling us, he's commanding us, pray for your enemies. So I want to share with you a final thought as I look back on my chair time this week. I've been pretty consistent. I asked Beth to hold me accountable to this. I want to share with you a quick story that I read about a man named Henry Nouwen. Many of you have probably read some of his works. He's one of the great Christian thinkers of, of the 20th century. And he went on a six-month mission trip to South America. And he had this idea that he was going to go and sort of save the world. And after six months of time, I want you to hear what he had to reflect on. This, just, this, this was one of the most moving things I've ever read. One of the most impactful and it's, I, I never thought of it this way, but I want you to share what he saw and felt and did after the six months that he came back from South America. Henry Nouwen writes this. He says, The desire to save, whether from sin or poverty or exploitation, is actually one of the most damaging motives in ministry. Now, that's a provocative statement. Let me finish what he says here. Humility is the real Christian virtue because only God has the power to save. When we learn this, he said, and when we live this, then we are free to serve. Then we can truly live humble lives. From that day forward, Henry Nouwen changed his approach 
from dispensing religion, as he called it, to dispensing grace. And he said it like this. It makes all the difference in the world whether I view my neighbor as a potential convert or as someone who God already loves. My job is to dispense grace. You know, there's an old country music song that goes like this. Jesus may love you, but I don't, and he may forgive you, but I won't. We got to get out of that mentality if we're walking down that path. Jesus commands us to bring peace. Jesus commands us to love our neighbors. Jesus commands us to repair where things are broken. Peacemaking is moving toward instead of moving away. And both, whether it's war or peace, they're both strategy-inducing. So I want to leave you with this thought. Here are some strategies I believe are important for making peace. Number one, and I'll try to go slow enough here to let this all settle. Number one, a strategy for making peace is to simply begin with prayer. Pray for humility. Pray to overcome my own ego, my own self-interest. I pray for humility. Am I at peace with God? Do I trust his love and provision? That's a prayer. God, I pray. I pray, for, I pray to trust you. I pray to thank you for your love. Help me make sure I understand my motives and all my relationships. Help me overcome my own ego. But we start with prayer. Secondly, we inventory. We ask a simple question. Who am I currently in disruption with in my life? Is it someone in, or somebody in my family? Is it somebody, a friend or a neighbor? Is it an actual enemy who Christ is telling me to pray for? Who is causing me the unrest? Where are the disruptions in my life? And then I want you to think and sincerely talk through what does it look like to try to make a turn? Where does that turn come from? Maybe you're on that football field and you're 100, miles, 100 yards apart. And maybe that first turn's only going to move somebody five yards this way or five yards this way. It may not happen overnight. But where can you take the first turn? What role do you play in that? And then I would say, this is, and this is critically important, seek the counsel of a wise friend. If that's someone in your life group, I'm going to walk through that in just a second. But discern when and with whom do I need to see a turn in a relationship. And I want to give you with just one more caveat, because I, I just want to be really careful as, as I teach this, because I think this is important as well. If you are removed from an abusive situation of some kind, whether it was emotional or physical or spiritually abusive, it may not be healthy just to return to it. I don't want to give you that advice. There's a difference between reaching a peace in your heart and returning to an unhealthy relationship that's not going to protect you. But that in turn may be required in the other person first. At the very least, I would advise you, encourage you, Pray that God can, can continue to change the heart of that other person in that situation. Does that make sense? I just don't want to send any mixed messages here. Not, it's not always healthy just to go back into a friendship or a relationship if it's unhealthy. But it is powerful to just simply start giving that over to God who has the, trans, the power to transform in his time. So here's one last thought, and then I want to go through the, the, the life group. I've said that three times. I apologize. I'm always getting to a last thought, but, but here it is. I watch this, you learn a lot of lessons as a dad. 
And I really have learned a lot about just especially Ben and Joey as they've been growing up playing a lot of basketball. And here's what I've learned about my boys. There are two kinds of fighting. <laughs> two kinds of fighting. One of them is competitive fighting. That's where neither one of them wants to leave the court until the other one's beaten the other. I'm okay with that a little bit. You know, it's, it's good to build some sense of competition. But where it crosses the line, and I watch it in my own kids, and I want to nail it right as soon as it happens, there's a difference between a sort of competitive fighting and a destructive fighting. Where words or deeds are done with a specific interest in hurting the other person. That's when it crosses the line. And that's when I step in as a dad and I say that's not acceptable. That's not okay. Because here's the deal. As a dad, it hurts me to watch my kids hurt each other. And so I tell them, if you're going to honor me, if you're going to honor your mother, you will never destroy each other. That's not okay. And those are lessons you walk through life with your kids. But you know what I think about? I think about this in terms of how we are God's children. Can you imagine how much it must break God's heart when we scheme against each other, when we gossip about each other, when we intentionally do things to hurt each other? Can you imagine how hurtful that is to God? I want to leave you with that thought. Because see, God sent his son for that very reason. He sent us his son so that he could absorb the sins of this world. He gave that. He gave Jesus to us as that sacrifice. We celebrate that during this season, this birth of Jesus. And so I close with this. Is there a conflict in one of your spheres? And what turn are you going to pray to make to turn that disruption and to begin to repair whatever you need to repair and whatever relationships you have to repair? i got to be honest with you. I did some self-examination. i got some places where i got to do some repairing myself. And it may be as simple as this. Look, I'm, I'm coming in peace. I'm coming with the goal of peace. Humility always disarms. It always does. It always disarms. What relationships do you have that currently need transformation in your life? Now, I want to talk very, very quickly. Josh is going to come up. But I want to talk very quickly about the life group curriculum. If you're a life group leader who's here you will get your packets. If you want one of these and you're not in a life group, just as a daily study, I'm going to give you one of these as well. That We've got copies for anybody who wants one. But tonight, or whenever you, whenever you meet this week in small group, there are some challenges in here. And they go right along with this message, just like next week when we do Wonderful Counselor. It's going to go right along with that. There's going to be time to discuss Scripture. There's going to be time to examine your own life in this. And then there's going to be time to apply. And that's the conversation that we're opening up. I don't like to give a lot of prescribed questions. Hey, read the question, fill in the answer. I'm not opposed to that, but sometimes I think organic conversation is so much more powerful. But what I'm going to ask is just one thing. There's a part in here where you're going to examine Jesus as the Prince of Peace. And it's the same questions we talked about this morning. How seriously am I taking my peacemaking mandate? And then you're going to go right down the line. With God, family, friendships, workplace, neighborhood, and community. If you remember the old Seinfeld episode, don't turn this into an airing of grievances, okay? Don't make this about, I've got problems with all these people and I don't have any reason to want to resolve them. If you prayerfully consider some relationship you want to repair and restore, that's the point when you need to bring that up with those around you and say, look, I don't know how I got to this point with this person, but here we are. 
And I don't even necessarily know where to turn or how to turn, but I am praying for the wisdom and the discernment of God to make me make that or help me make that first step. That's the direction of the conversation that I want to encourage us to have because I just think it's so important. We need to be a peacemaking academy at Whiting Christian Church. We need to be about peace. We need to be about hope. We pray with me. Father God, I am so thankful for the blessings that you have bestowed on us. We are just in this season of Christmas, we just celebrate the amazing gift of your son who came to this earth. The son who came, taught us, and then died for us. He overcame death, and we're assured that if we follow him, we have eternal life with you. It's an amazing gift. It's such a humbling gift for you to send the Prince of Peace, in this way. Father, we just turn our hearts, we turn our minds, and we turn our entire selves into the, uh, into the notion of where do we need to seek peace in our lives. Father, for each person here, I pray that they can thoughtfully examine their role as peacemakers in this week ahead. And we thank you for all of your blessings. Guide us, lead us, and strengthen us as we carry on some really big conversations in the week ahead. And it's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.